Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my very, very dear colleague and friend, Dr. Lee O'Brien. Hello, Stephanie. It's lovely to be here. Well, I always love having Lee in the studio with me. And today we are here together to talk about um, a wonderful play that is actually turning 125 this year. 125 years since it was first written and performed, and that is Oscar Wilde's A Woman of No Importance, which I think is an amazing title, and we'll set up a very interesting chat here today. So, Lee, when I was um, rereading A Woman of No Importance, which I hadn't read for, I don't know, 10 years, maybe, Mm. maybe more, um, I just did some noodling around the internet and looking at some criticism and so forth, and everywhere I went, it said A Woman of No Importance is not Oscar Wilde's best, best play and it's kind of a disappointment and so forth. Do you agree? What do you think of A Woman of No Importance? I th- I think A Woman of No Importance, Lady Windermere's fan and an, and an ideal husband. Don't know, I'll leave Salome and, and his historical drama out of it, but the, these drawing room comedies in inverted commas, they're also much in the shadow of the importance of being earnest. Mm. Yeah. Because that that is a perfect play. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect comedy. It has the wit. It has. It's just. It's just really extraordinary. So it's a bit unfair <laughs> that people don't like a woman of no importance because it 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 it's it's a hard it's it's a hard Ernest is a hard act to follow. Yeah. So um, no, I found it. I found it a really interesting play. Um, I can't. I, I like you. I was looking at um, performances and readings of it on the YouTube, and I thought, uh oh, um, because they do that thing. A lot of the, the the bits that I saw, they read Wild in a very mannered way. Mm. They read it as if they're very conscious that this is Oscar Wilde and this is witty. And I think the dialogue was, although it's stupendously witty and structured and artificial I think it was written to be delivered as ordinary speech Mm. obviously posh and all the rest of it but I think it only I I hate it when they sort of declaim to each other and they're very aware that they're being witty and I just wonder if in performance it doesn't get a bit bit I don't know, gypped in in a way. So I, I, it, it'd be lovely to get in a time machine and go back to see how it was performed in Wilde's time because mm. I don't know a lot about the type of performances they would have been. But to me, that's the, the amazing thing of it. He imagines this world, a world I think he actually hates, but that's a very complicated matter. Mm. Um, and he, he just gives them the kind of speech that he would like them to be able to speak. But it can never be performed in that really mannered and self-conscious way. But that's not saying anything about the content of the play. Um, it, it, it doesn't have that brilliance. It, it, so it, it's it's not a courtship play, as mm. the importance of being earnest is. It's And it's not a marriage play because they're not, she's a fallen woman. She, it's not about marriage. Although I suppose it's a they're courtship play because there's Gerald and, and yeah. the Puritan. The Puritan, yes. <laughs> but that's, that. I just found it interesting how that aspect of it is so minor yeah. compared to what unfolds. So 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, very, I'm just in two minds about it. I find it a fascinating read. But I just, I don't know, what do you think? How, how well, did you react I, to it? Well, I, I remembered enjoying it the first time I read it, which, I, again, was probably more than 10 years ago. Um, what struck me this time was the tonal shift between Act 1 and the rest of the play oh, because Act yes. 1 starts in okay. this, like, very, you know, Mm. Wildian wit, you know, they're they're throwing out witty bon mots, and you can imagine mm. how I, I entirely take your point that in performance that can be very mannered and very, you know, like I, I could just imagine an actor delivering a line and then like waiting for the laugh, you know. Um, so that it's very much in that kind of social comedy mode, and then you get a really distressing story about a horrible man, an absolutely terrible man who has ruined this woman's life mm. and treats her with absolute contempt and this, you know, this awful kind of social tragedy that follows very quickly after this, this scene of kind of high farce. And, I mean, the first scene is very funny because yes, I, I especially loved um, uh, Lady Caroline, I think, calls um Mr. Kel Mr. Kelville Mr. Kettle. Mr. Kettle. And, and she then, persists in doing that. And she persists she? and then and then Sir John's I think only line through Act One is Kelville, my love. Kelville. And then he'll say, Oh yes, Mr she'll say, Oh yes, Mr. Kettle. Um so that you have this like really, really funny yeah. very, very wildy and very recognizable wildy and wit. Yeah. And then you get this terrible story of this family. This, this um, woman who is a fallen woman and who's been abandoned and treated abominably by Lord Illingworth. Yeah. And it struck me as a strange kind of mixture and I was like, I don't quite know how to put my finger on this play because of that, be- because it seems to be one thing and then it's not. And then it's it still retains that wit throughout, but it's not funny when you think about what's actually happening. Yeah. I, I wonder, does it come... See, we were talking on the way over and I was talking to you about my sudden interest in melodrama. Yeah. And uh, and and that was actually sparked by by this play and by reading East Lynn. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Henry Wood's East Lynn and the the figure of the mother is so central in melodrama. So I was looking at it and thinking, well, this play must be ob- is very obviously situated in a whole history of melodrama mm-hmm. on the English stage that Wilde was deeply aware of. Mm. But we've also got the phenomenon that Ibsen yeah. and Strindberg, um, the Sturm und Drang and, and, and the so- social problem plays yeah. are starting to emerge. And I think you've probably put your finger on it that there's... So we've got the drawing room comedies... That, that Oscar Wilde perfected in, in The Importance of Being an Earnest. But what happens in A Woman of No Importance is that he brings it slap bang up against the social problem mm. drama, which was to in the 20th century, it came to be called kitchen sink drama and, and that mm. kind of look, putting the domestic under um, the microscope and, and looking at how hard it is for women but women in particular, but men too, to live really decent lives when everything around them is just conspiring against them. And that's what's happening with with the main woman character in this this play. So I think that tonal thing, that that I think you're absolutely right, that you're picking up, 
is because Wilde is trying to do quite complex things with melodrama, and he's so he's he's keyed into the past, the history of English drama, but he's also very aware of the future and how that's going to unfold with the, George Bernard Shaw mm, yeah. and all those plays that come later uh, or at the same time and a bit later. So he's very up to the minute. He, he's because mm. uh, in a doll's house, yeah, that's where right. Nora just sla- the famous scene at the end where where you hear she leaves her husband and children and you hear the, the door, door slam. slam. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought he, and I've actually read something. When Wilde came out of prison, he asked Robbie Ross, his great friend and lover as well, to bring him two books. And one of them was an Ibsen play oh, wow. when he got out of prison. So he knew Ibsen inside out. Yeah. So I think what you're picking up is yeah. what Wilde is picking up through um, drama that's coming out of Europe. Yeah, that's interesting because I think we we have this like popular vision of Wilde, which he did a lot to cultivate, of him as this you know aesthetic aesthete, um, yeah. you know, lounging around, being you know witty and wealthy, and you know, lying on velvets and furs and so forth. The green carnation. The green carnation, mm-hmm. exactly. But this is a very very moral play I think yes, isn't it? <laughs> it's very moral and it's very and as you said before um it it very sharply shows his contempt for that social world that he's so often associated with and he was a part I mean through yeah. Lord Alfred Douglas he, he was a part but he never was fully a part of it but but through Douglas he was he was fa- Wilde's a great snob I mean he, mm. he was fascinated by them but he really he he sees through them. He, he must have been, I think, in in a lot of pain a lot of time because his sexuality didn't fit, mm. and he's Irish, of course, mm. so he he doesn't fit with the English establishment, and and it's complicated too because Lord Illingworth is really scary, yeah, really scary, he's a terrible person. He's a bit. He reminds me of Wharton in. Um, Dorian Gray, you know, yes, this, yeah. this man who uses his aristocratic power utterly ruthlessly and particularly against women. Mm. And yet he gives him the famous line, the English, what, what, what is health? The English country gentleman galloping after a fox, the unspeakable in full pursuit of the uneatable. You know, the, 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 one of the most famous of all Wilde's lines, and that's Lord Illingworth. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, he talks about um, intellect um, is not a serious thing and never has been. It is an instrument on which one plays. That is all. The only serious form of intellect I know is a British intellect. And the British intellect, uh, and on the British intellect, the illiterates play the drum. Mm. And then he has another go at, at the English with De Bretz and the Peerage being the greatest work of fiction. Fiction, yeah. <laughs> I did like that. So he really, he goes for the throat. Yeah. Through Illingworth, he's yeah. a swine. Who is a swine? Who represents everything that Wilde is, well, he doesn't re- represent the illiterates because he's clearly an intelligent man. But he represents that really feral privilege of the aristocracy that Wilde just skewers. He just mm. makes you see it as the empty sham it is, or was for him. Well, I've always found Wilde difficult to get my head around at times because he does that, as you say, you know, he'll 
he represents Lord Illingworth as a terrible, you know, privileged monster, really. But yet he makes him funny. He gives him all the wittiest lines. He gives him lines that are associated in the popular imagination with Wild that have been lifted out of this novel and used on, you know, T-shirts and mouse pads. He just recycled endlessly. He plagiarised himself all the time. Well, there's a line from a line from Ernest in here about the tragedy of 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 men is that they. Women turn into their mothers. The tragedy for men yeah. is that they don't. And the decay of lying. He lifts. He lifts. Yeah, he so, lifts. His essay, yeah. yeah. So he associates, yeah. in a way, a Lord Illingworth is a kind of wild yes. character. Yes. Well, when you think of Wilde's marriage. Yeah, that's right. And what and happened to his wife, which actually doesn't bear thinking about the cruelty of that. Yeah. And every time I think, every time I read about Constance Wilde, I think I can never read Wilde again. I can't stand this. Because of what he put her through. Did you want to, for the listeners who don't know what he put her through? Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, sorry, listener. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Constance, the ironically named Constance Wilde, (laughs) was was Wilde's wife. It it was a match of love. And um, she was a beautiful young woman. She came from a very troubled background because her mother abused her, physically abused her and psychologically abused her. And she married wild uh, and it was a love match. And she clearly thought she was rescued and she was safe. And then, of course, wild sexuality, which was a torment, you know, a problem for him. But really, it it emerged in a way that was terrible for her because he fell in love with Lord Alfred Douglas. Who was the worst? Who was a really cruel and and frightening young man. Yeah. Um, And... And Wilde brought all these young aesthetes to his home and you can, when you read about the way he treated her and you read about some of the comments he makes about his sexual disgust for her in the letters, as a woman reading it, I'm just, I'm thinking, I can't, I, I can't stand this. I'll never read him again. Then you read mm. his, his plays and his essays and his fairy tales and he knows, he knows it all. Yeah, he, he he is, and I think his women characters are stunning. Mm. I think the women characters in this one and Lady Windermere's fan and an ideal husband, I I just think they're wonderful. I don't read them and think, oh yeah, right, this is a man's idea of what a woman is. Mm. He really seems to inhabit them, and understand their plight so intensely, mm. and I think what's happening. You know that scene when um, Lord Ellingworth is talking to his son and he doesn't know at the moment that it's his son. Did it seem to you that it almost unfolds as a seduction? Mm. Am I being a bit um, weird? No, 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 no. (laughs) But there's a kind of taking possession of him. It's not explicitly, I'm not suggesting it's explicitly sexual at all, but uh, it, it's like a wooing. A, it is. Yeah. That's a better way to put it. And and I sort of and I and I think Wilde is just so aware of what's mm. how that's happening, and the wooing is accomplished by a, um, just a demolition job on women because mm. Illingworth is saying these appalling things mm. about women, and Gerald is sitting there lapping it all up, mm. and he's turning him in to himself, and this is what. Mrs. Arbuthnot can't, the mother, cannot cannot face, cannot let happen. Yeah. And I think the whole force of the play is to rescue Gerald from his father. 
Now, that, yeah. how interesting is that? I agree. I agree. That's the whole force of the play. And I agree that he, he does women characters so beautifully because you totally understand exactly what the stakes are for her. Even when she doesn't really say all of that much, yeah. what she does say makes it very clear to you what she's suffered, what the stakes are, why she's put everything into into her son, the way she wants to save her son from him, um, and her visceral disgust at the idea of marrying him and her absolute conviction that that cannot be, that she could not do it. And it, it, right, it rang so true for me. Whereas what I find difficult with Wilde is that he always seems to... He's so tongue-in-cheek, it's hard to find a kind of locate authority. You know, what does he actually think? Because he's always so tongue-in-cheek. And so you'll get this Lord Illingworth saying, you know, um, all these terrible things about women. And you think, is this Wilde thinking this? Like, you know, Lord Illingworth is talking to Mrs. Allenby and he says, I don't think there is a woman in the world that would not be a little flattered if one made love to her. It is that which makes women so irresistibly adorable. Yeah. Um, yeah, And so forth and so forth. And then he kisses the Puritan against her will. He says, I don't mind plain women being Puritans. It's the only excuse they have for being plain, etc. So he says all of these things about women and you think, "Mm, I don't don't know if, if what's if we're supposed to take this seriously or not, because it seems like he's sometimes a mouthpiece of Wilde and sometimes he's, he's not. not. And so it's never quite clear. But with with her, I felt that in a way that I I was certain on what ground I was with her, whereas I wasn't certain for vast swathes of the play where she's not there. Yeah. See, I think Wilde is, knows the kind of woman he likes and admires, which is the woman who's taken on her suffering, who's made a terrible mistake mm. and who has become amongst the fallen and the outcasts. And she's intelligent enough to know exactly what she's done. Mm. And and so you know the kind of woman he admires. I think there's a real affection oh, yeah. in the way he he portrays her. And then a lot, that amazing scene at the end where she slaps his face with the glove. Well, yeah. And he's that so must, shocked. That must be wonderful. That as as the end, that that must be amazing to watch. Imagine uh, a really, really. I've never seen this in performance, but no. imagine a really competent, oh, really wonderful actress doing that. The whole play builds up to, to that, that. Yeah. and and so you know what side the play is on. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I I would assume that Wilde is on her side yeah, too. But absolutely. I think there are complex reasons for that, which we might get on on to later. But. Yeah, I, 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 and I agree so much. See, I think because he gives Illingworth these wonderful lines, mm. he he sees aspects in Illingworth that I think it, it's wild. It, yeah, he has that wit that Wild has, but he knows also that Illingworth is totally morally bankrupt. Mm. He's a user. Mm. He's a predator, mm-hmm. and I think. Wilde loathes that in him, even though he's seeing aspects of that in himself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I wonder also, too, when you mentioned that Wilde was Irish, which I obviously knew, but I was thinking about like that idea of the interloper in this this, um, play is very much associated with Hester being American. Now, I mean, there's a kind of difference geographically in being American and being Irish, but... I wonder if he sees himself as a kind of almost a Hester character in that everybody's always commenting on her Americanness, 
every conversation about her, whether it's to her face or behind her back, is about her being an American and he Lord Illingworth of course calls her the Puritan and so forth because yeah. she's American. Yeah. So I wonder if there is also a sense that he that aspects of his character are dispersed through a range of characters and that Hester represents that outsider who which position he really held. That's he did. Yeah. He he was always the outsider. And there's this wonderful phrase I forget I've read a lot of accounts of his Oh, that's right. Peter Ackroyd has a wonderful um, introduction to the old Penguin edition of, um, what is it, of, of Dorian Gray. And he said he uses his plays to absolutely take the, the scalpel and the meat axe to English upper class society and the bourgeoisie as well, because he mocks the values of the people who are coming to see the plays. And I think it's Ackroyd who says, he was never going to get away with that. And they circled him in the old Bailey and they take him down like mm. he's the fox being taken down by the hunting dogs and they won't let him get away yeah. with that Irish um, and and homosexuality. He's, he, as you say, he's the outsider who presumed to judge the insiders. And that's what Hester does in this play, doesn't she? And they mm. destroyed him, and, and yet Hester, yet Hester, the woman, survives. Well, she he, kind of saves them yeah, by taking yeah, him away. She does, and yeah. she has to rethink her own puritanical views too, because mm. I think that's very interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff about sin yeah. and the religious view of sin in here, which is very serious stuff. I mean, that goes beyond drawing room comedy mm. but I, I just I thought that um, another thing that struck me as I was um, it, it's complex too because did you find it when I was just looking at it again this morning you're very much aware that initially what Illingworth wants to do for Gerald is a good thing mm. he's met this young man who's a bank clerk in some half baked town mm. somewhere who will never amount to anything. And Illingworth knows that as his secretary, he's going to give him entree into mm. the highest echelons of society and it will be the making of him. And he has no reason to do that at that point because he doesn't know it's his son. Well, it's interesting. He says, I just like you and I want you with me. And yeah. I'm thinking, right, okay. Yeah. But he's, um, no, and, but it. it, it it's an act, actually, isn't it, of altruism? Yeah, and everybody else is very well aware of the impact that that's going to have on yeah. Gerald's life. Yeah. And, I mean, they uh, they talk very flatteringly of Lord Illingworth in ways that he doesn't deserve. But they also say, you know, what an amazing opportunity this is for you. And it is. And I think Wilde plays fair with that mm. because it is an extraordinary yes. opportunity. His, his, his life will be made. His riches will be made. So when his mother comes in and says, you can't have him, I won't let him go. And he says to her, well, I'm sorry, but you've got to let him go. He's got to have a life. The rest of his life shouldn't be just with you. Well, you think, well, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, as both Gerald and Lord Illingworth say, you know, a man has to move on. And a man's just, got to do what a yeah, man's got to do. He can't just hang around with his mother for the rest of his life. Which, and... There's that wonderful shootout in the OK Corral when they're taught, he's mine, you're not having him, no, he's mine. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're fighting over over Gerald. And the thing that is so wonderful about, about Wilde is that he clearly shows you there both the stakes and the fact that Gerald would really be ruined in many ways if he went with Lord Illingworth. But at the same time, 
it would be good for him. It would be the making yes. of him. So you can understand why yeah. she can't let him go yeah. and she won't let him go and all. And you were completely on board with all of her reasoning. But at the same time, if you look at it pragmatically, it's why actually not? a good opportunity for him. I think Wilde is very even-handed about it. The thing that also, though, that the play makes very clear is that the price for Illingworth to take on Gerald is that he will make Gerald a version of himself. Yeah, that's right. And we know from the history of the seduction and betrayal and the abandonment mm. of his wife and child just what just what kind of man mm. Gerald is going to become. So we've got this set-off between social power and privilege and what kind of man you have to be mm. to take advantage of that. And that's where Illingworth kind of miscalculates because in trying to kiss and seduce potentially and rape even um, Hester Um, and you know obviously Gerald finds out about that because she comes in you know very distressed he has allowed Gerald to see that and to see that that's the kind of man he's associating with and will be and will become really as you say so he he miscalculates in displaying that and openly. He's, and he's done it as a dare with the Mrs. Allenby mm. character. Yeah. She says, you should, I, I give you a week to, to kiss her and, and all that, yeah, coded stuff to actually. But yeah, and that's interesting that Mrs. Allenby is yeah. such a. Yes. Because there's obviously but, a sexual kind of frisson between those two characters. Very much. And yeah, and she's also, I mean, the way she kind of stirs him on. Mm. Mm. and participates in his kind of bad behaviour. It's also mm. very problematic, I think. Mm. Oh, yes, I, I think so. So it's interesting, isn't it? See, I never... You say you don't know how to take Wilde, and and I, I, can, I can really see that because he's... On the one hand, he's so... There's a simplicity about Wilde, mm. isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he just takes ordinary values and the things that people will never say and he says them. Mm. And all the values, the hypocritical values, he just turns them on their head. Mm-hmm. So it's a topsy-turvy thing. It's not as if he says anything new. It's just that he turns everything upside down. Mm. And and so you think, well, is this really incredibly clever or is this just a matter of taking what everybody is saying and just flipping it and saying the reverse see that that was what now i was looking at the dates of this because i reread the green carnation when i was reading this the green carnation um was published in 1894 Mm -hmm. and that is by that was a novel by robert hitchens Mm -hmm. about wild and bosey and there's a it's i highly recommend people read it's it's an utterly fascinating novel and and there's a version of wild and a version of lord alfred douglas who's a terrifying character but there's also a wonderful woman character in it she's a widow she's been the wife of a a soldier and she's been left in that very dangerous position of twenty thousand pounds a year or something so she becomes a prize on the marriage market and the character who's playing Lord Alfred Douglas is toying with the idea of marrying her because he wants her money. And I, and I thought, well, and and it was a devastating. Uh, some people have called it a satire of Wilde and Douglas, and it just was a demolition job because it takes so obviously that position that he's a fraud. He he uses his wit 
to just turn things upside down. And of course that's shocking, but so what? What else would it be if mm. you just turned all these truisms and all mm. the stuff and if you expose the hypocrisy? So what about, what's the point of that? Another interesting aspect about the green carnation, which is come some woman of no importance. It's a year after a mm. woman of no importance. And the woman in it, Miss Lady Locke, has a son, a very young son, a nine-year-old, and Bosie sort of zeroes in on him. And there's this wooing plot oh, thing that you picked up in A Woman of No Importance. That's interesting. And Lady Locke, decide, who's sexually attracted to the Bosie character, decides not to marry him because of his attitude to her son and the desire to make the young boy into an aesthete and make him wear the green, green carnation. carnation. Ah. And it was a dev Hitchens was a bit devastated because it was used at the trial. Right. And okay. it was used to broaden the attacks against Wilde as it not only, you know, was he having sex with other men, but there was all these underage sort of mm. things around the edges. So it was actually Hitchens, you know, didn't really mean it that way, but Hitchens takes that kind of point of view about Wilde. Well, what is so clever? It, it doesn't, doesn't he just keep saying the same, it's the same politics of shock that he uses over and over and over again? I actually don't agree with it. I can see why Hitchens would see that and, how, and what a powerful criticism of Wilde that is. But I just think Wilde is more complex than that. Mm. And this is where I get confused about Wilde because he seems to be a combination of this really obvious stuff and this wit that's a scalpel sledgehammer wit, but there's so much else going on. Yeah, well, that's kind of where my confusion that I was talking about earlier lies as well. Because on the one hand, he is, you know, using shock and turning these truisms on their head and, you know, giving you witty bon mots about, you know, how degraded society was. And, and that's very kind of, you know, you can read it and he'll be he'll say something about society and, it, you know, that lays bare its kind of hypocrisy and you'll go, yes, I agree, you know, that's so clever and everything. But to me what always strikes me about Wilde is how moral he is. Yeah, me too, yeah. And it's always there's always this underlying kind of sense of social injustice and sense of of the various ways that people can be terrible to each other that underlies all of this. So on the one hand, he seems to be playing this very transgressive kind of game. But on the other, there's often a really kind of, not a simple moral, but a a kind of marked moral, oh, I suppose. Profound. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And he was so, he was, he was, Astonished when people thought that Dorian Gray was a was a transgressive and 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 wicked novel. Yeah, because it's a morality tale. It is a morality. It's tale. Cry, It's sin. It's 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 the fall. It's the it's, wages it, of sin. It, isn't the wages it? of yeah. sin is death. Yeah, and yeah, I I think he was a profoundly moral man, and that comes out in the fairy tales. That yeah, like the Happy them. Prince and so forth. Oh yeah. God, yeah, and the one there's one called the the something friend. And it's the destruction of this decent miller. It's all in fairy folktale way, by this hugely greedy, horrible man who just takes everything from him. And it's it's what you say. He feels for the dispossessed. Yeah, he's got this real kind of very marked social justice consciousness about him, where like yeah. you feel that he's 
Absolutely. That, you know, just leave aside all of the wit and the, you know, Lord Illingworth being witty bon mots and all of that. Um, you feel that there's this really profound feeling for what she has suffered um, and what other women in that position, because you, you were talking before about how there's a focus on sin and like the idea that the sins of the of the parents or the sins of the father, mm. you know, being waged on the children. Even unto the third and fourth Even generation. Even unto the third and fourth yeah. generation. And yeah. you, you see that kind of reacting against that, you know, yeah. like yeah. you cannot, con- she's made a mistake, yes, but she shouldn't suffer or be or be judged by that. And you, yeah. you feel this real conviction that she's the innocent victim here. And she's, you know, she shouldn't be the one who who suffers. It should be him, but he gets away with it. And he's so angry that Lord Illingworth gets to get away with what he's done with no consequences ever, right, and that she has to be the one who suffers. And, again, that's interesting because Hester changes her view. And she initially thinks, you know, fallen women should be punished. But then in in her kind of interaction with Gerald's mother, realises that that's too simplistic. Yes a kind of way of understanding what has happened to her. So there is this really highly developed like championing of the of the of the dispossessed and the and the um the outsider or the the victim. That happens in Dorian Gray too with Sybil Sybil Vane and her brother. And that's yeah. some critics really attack that aspect of the novel, but I love that part of it. And yeah. students love it too. When I last taught Dorian Gray, mostly they wanted to talk about Sybil Vane and and, yeah. and she's the dispossessed. She's the one who comes into contact with this privileged world and this prince who kills her in, in mm. effect. So yes, and isn't it interesting too um, you're, you're talking about sin and morality and God. God is mentioned. You know, mm. God is 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 uh, is, is is here. <laughs> he's yeah, not, he's not a character in the play, but what what he represents that kind of absolute moral sense. And when uh, Mrs. Arbuthnot um, rejects, look, she as you say, she's got this disgust for the man, mm. and she will not marry him now. By the canons of polite society, that's exactly what she should have done. Mm-hmm. She can make it good. Her sin, uh, as society sees it, was to do what she shouldn't have done and blah, blah, blah. She broke the rules. She can make it good and she can marry. And for her, that is a travesty. For her, that is a sin in itself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you talked about the change in tone. Well, you really get that big time in, in, in towards the end of the play mm. where she articulates how the actresses learn these long speeches yeah. is beyond me. But I know. <laughs> she absolutely defends the concept of marriage. She says, I cannot say what is in the marriage service. I cannot marry a man I despise. I can't promise all these things. It is a moral impossibility for me. Hmm. And and for and but for society, they would see it as immoral to not hmm. marry him. Who gives a damn about what you actually say in the marriage yeah. ceremony? That, that that is meaningless for the Illingworths and the Mrs. Allenbys and everything, but not for the play. I think the play is behind that sense of. Moral, absolute moral value. Yeah, well, and I mean, even the other the, the society women that you get in that first scene who are who are talking, you see the way they react to their husbands or the way they relate to their husbands, oh, and and it's such a 
such a beautiful takedown of yeah. of marriage as this you know yeah. sham and this yeah. hypocrisy. And there's that. There's two instances of that. That which whichever lady it is, she's got a husband and she keeps trying to control him. Go and put your galoshes on. The, the, mm. the, you know it's damp on the glass, and I keep grass and I, I keep knitting you mufflers, and you know, and he's off flirting with other women. Yeah. And there's that. I, I should imagine it's very effective in performance where she's trying to control. Yeah. Who is it, lady? I think it's Lady Caroline. Yes, it, it yeah. is. And then later on, she's looking for him. Yes. And he's not in the spot where he's supposed to be. And, and the other lady sort of tells a lie that he's in the yellow drawing room, but he's actually in the music room with with somebody else. Yeah. So, so you get you clearly, and you you clearly see what's going actually going yes. on here. Yeah. And, and did you pick up the bit too? I I only really noticed it this morning. The um, there's the vicar. What's his name? The um, oh, the, yes. what do they call him? Um, uh, and the he's... curate or no, no, it's not the curate. What is it? The um, the archdeacon. The archdeacon. And all the references to his wife. Yes, she's 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 lost her hearing. She can't get out of bed. She used to be able to read. She can't read anymore. Um, and she's got dementia, she, doesn't she's, she? Yeah, she's yeah. living on jellies. <laughs> and and there's these little bits of dialogue. And it's quite clear that the marriage with him has killed her. Yeah. I think. Did did you read yeah, it yeah, that yeah. way? I, I um not necessarily I don't think I, I sort of picked up that, that it's the marriage that has killed her, but I got this sense that's a really good pick up that I hadn't quite got to. But I think that what what struck me is how like awful this was. And this is yes. played for like you know, it's part of these kind of society funny scenes, right? It's not yeah. like part of the high drama that is that is Gerald's story. No. But like you just get you know, they'll be talking about nonsense and then he'll just say, Oh yes, she can't eat anymore. No. Or you know, or she she sometimes she doesn't recognise me. You're like, This is terrible. And, it, and it's and it's played for laughs, but it's not. It's not funny. And that bit about her surviving um she 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 can only eat jellies. Uh, she used to be quite remarkable for her, sorry, the light's bad, for her memory. But since her last attack, she recalls chiefly the events of her early childhood, but she finds great pleasure in such retrospections. Great pleasure. And you're thinking, what? Yeah. So what, what is, what, what's actually what happening What has here? happened? What has the archdeacon done to his wife? So she's clearly, you know, that um, line from... Um, the way of the world, I shall gradually dwindle into mm. a wife. Mm. She's dwindled. She's she, The marriage, I read it as the marriage to That's this cute. archdeacon who's this figure of the church. Now we're talking about the church and the sense of morality. He's just yeah. destroyed her. She's just been chewed up by her duties as a wife and now she's blind and she can't walk and she's bedridden and she lives on jellies and she and can't she, remember and she's her, lost her yeah. mind and she's lost her memories yeah and and it and you're right it's sort of played for laughs but you know it's a, it it's not for laughs yeah i often find that when when um reading wild you'll you'll get to a part and it'll be skated over very quickly yes. and then you'll think oh that's funny and then you're like what am well, i well, laughing well, at that, you know that, that's so true. like I'm laughing about this poor woman who can't eat anything and yeah. has lost her mind because yeah. her husband is so ridiculous. And he's out, you know, hobnobbing with the aristocracy and enjoying yeah. it. And Mr. Kettle. Mr. Kelville, Mr. Kettle, yeah. Who's in praise of marriage. Yeah. And then the lady somebody or other is interrogating him. Um, and how many children have you got? Eight. Mm. And I could just hear the audience just 
screaming with laughter. And how often do you see them? Oh, oh, you know, as often as my work will allow no. me to see them. And then the, the punchline of that is, oh, well, your wife must be very grateful for the job you have because the, the children are off at the seaside <laughs> with yeah. the wife and he's, he's swanning, swanning around, around socialising. So it's another version of the archdeacon and yeah. his wife. It's this totally toxic marriage. So it keeps showing you versions yeah. of what conventional marriage is all about and how you'd have to be insane to actually sign up for it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's what Mrs. Arbuthnot says. I, I will I will not yeah. do this. <laughs> and and but then you also see the cost of not doing this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I think that we sometimes are inattentive in our reading. I don't mean you and I, I mean like oh, no, culturally. We're, 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 we're never inattentive, no, as you know. No. But um I think culturally our kind of understanding of Oscar Wilde sometimes sells him short because I think we latch on to like the funny, you know, wit and the the, the quotable quotes that can be lifted out of the, the you know, the plays and yes. just plopped on something. But when you think about it, the whole play, even this, you know, quite almost frivolous sounding kind of social comedy, it's all infused with that social consciousness. It's all a, it's all a, incredibly sharp critique of this world that is just unbelievably kind of stupid and venal. Mm, that's so true. He reminds me sometimes of Swift. Mm. I think that satire, you know, the uh, the famous Swift thing, um, um, a modest proposal. Modest proposal. So, the, yeah. poor, the poor shall eat, cook and eat their children and that way we'll, we'll solve all of you know, they, they'll survive and we'll, we'll yeah, keep the population so, under control. And yeah. Swift's anger that just comes out in this strange mm. kind of satire. Mm. I actually think Wilde is such a great satirist too. Mm, yeah, I think so. Why do you think we have this perception of Wilde as this kind of, I don't know, as implicated, I suppose, in this social world? Oh, I blame him entirely. Yeah. <laughs> because because yeah. He, he played that part so brilliantly. Yeah. I think he maybe didn't realise that people would take the performance of him mm. that he exploited because he had to in, in so many different ways. I, I don't. I, I think in some ways he falls into his own trap that he played this the aesthete who's who's not interested in morality and politics and everything is beauty and mm. we don't have to do this and we just walk through life as and and we follow the beauty and we do this and blah 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 and he became so powerfully identified with that and i'm with the critics who don't see him as being identified with that at all mm. he he loves aspects of it but what i just think wild had such an amazing intelligence that he could see things that he liked being and and the, and the aspects of aristocratic life. Uh, but at the same time, it must have been quite hard, at the same time he could see what a sham it was. Mm. And yet he, I mean, he's capable. He, with some of his young male lovers, he was very cruel. Mm. He was so fascinating. He'd make them fall in love with him. And so something that was for him a one-night stand and he'd just uh, abandoned them, it, he actually hurt mm. quite a lot of them. When you read, there's some amazing biographies of Wilde. And, and he, was a, he could be a really cruel man. 
So when he, he does things like um, some listeners might know of, of his kind of um, more literary works, as in literary criticism, like The Decay of Lying, in which he yeah. articulates his kind of aesthetic philosophy, do you think he's just having it on? Do you think he means it? Because in his a lot of his aesthetic kind of writing and philosophy is, is the, you know, that art for art's sake, that, you know, art should be beautiful and, and meaningless mm. and that it should be evacuated of any kind of political mm. Um, mm. potency, I suppose, or political content and it should exist to be a beautiful object that's admired. Do you think that's all crap? No, no, I don't think so. I think at one level he utterly believes in it because you have to put him in his mm. historical context. Yeah. We've got the age of mass production. We've got industrialization gone mad. We've got a world full of cheaply produced things. Mm. We've got a rising middle class with very conventional values who, who reduce art to what you pay for it mm-hmm. and reduce beauty to some, to a market commodity. And, and that's what the... I think Wilde is the ascete, is pitting himself. It's like throwing a hand grenade. You think only money and property matters. Well, I'll tell you what matters. It's 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 beauty. Yeah, all the things that we don't actually have a, a monetary value to ascribe it, to. It's yeah. a highly politicised stance. Yeah, at and the same time that it says it's not political. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think Wilde knew that more than the young men, more than someone like, Douglas would have ever understood. I, I just think Wilde knew its limitations, but he knew how important it was too. Yeah. And when you think, look, we're coming up. So Wilde um, dies in. Um, it, it's right on. It's it's right on the uh, nineteen hundred. I think he dies. He's only he's only forty or something when he dies. It's just. Mm. Um, but when you think that the world is moving towards the First World War. Yeah, that's true. And all the people that Wilde was loathing, they're the very people in power whose decisions were leading to the First World War and the destruction of a a whole generation, not only of the young men who died and were destroyed on the battlefields, but their families. And so all those attitudes that he's saying, for God's sake, you know, there's something desperately wrong with what you think and what you believe in and, and, and can we stop this? I mean, he was right, yeah, wasn't he? Well, I mean, it's it's almost shocking, even though, I, you know, you know the dates of, you know, Wilde's life and when he was writing and when he died and you know the dates of World War One. but it's shocking to kind of think about how close he was to that because we associate him so firmly with a certain period in time. The fin de siècle. Yeah, mm. exactly. And so it's really disconcerting or surprising to think about him in terms of the 20th century and how close all of these major, major world upheavals. Like the, the First World War changed the entire world. Everything. In, it turned everything. it upside down the way yeah. Wilde does with his wit, only it did it through... Through destruction, mm, mass slaughter. Yes, yeah. mass slaughter on, on, on the, in the trenches and on the killing fields. That's right. Yes, it is odd, isn't it? And when you think, well, he deri- he died as a direct result of what happened to him in prison. And that's another thing that mm. is very hard to read because a lot of material has come out about exactly what happened to Wilde in prison and the conditions in prison are, are utterly devastating. And he writes two famous um, letters to a, a, a newspaper 
pleading for something to be done to help the people who are in prison, mm. young children who are taken into prison, who are put in with the older prisoners, men who are there for, for very small crimes and, and, and being driven mad by the circumstances. So he really, you know, he, he, he had this sense of, of horror um, and 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 yet it it killed him. I mean, he was he, he was he was a physical wreck yeah. when he came out of prison. But he's only um, I think he's right on forty. I just can't remember his dates. So if 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 that hadn't happened to him, mm. he could have easily have lived another twenty years. Mm. He could have lived and been writing for mm. another twenty years into the twentieth century. Yeah, it's amazing to think about that. And his wife died because she had a fall. He, his Constance Wilde died before he did, um, and she had a fall and hurt her back, and her back was very weak because of the abuse she'd suffered as a child. God, what so a terrible she, life! Oh, I didn't know that about oh, Constance. Oh, yes, of yeah. all the people you would not want to be um, reincarnated or live the life of, it, it's Constance Wilde. Mm. and. And and she dies. She dies before he does. Yeah. Uh, so I I yeah. I, it, it's um. It, it's like George Eliot. I would love. I've loved George Eliot to have re- lived another twenty years and in into the more um, open and 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 frightening kind of world that that evolved in the twentieth century. Yeah. I mean, I think we have this this kind of vision of of Oscar Wilde as you know this perpetual kind of. Um, lay about, you know, with sumptuous clothes and, you know, eating and hanging out and being witty. Mm. But he lived a tragic, oh, tragic awful. life awful. that we sometimes kind of, we know about, but yeah. I don't think we yeah. have assimilated that into our yeah. perception of what he was. And how many people go through the experience of being hauled up in a criminal court for your sexuality? Yeah, and, and you know, having multiple people come in and talk about and that, prob- that most private of yeah. your lo- part yes. of your life, and you know? cross-examined by one of the best barristers, one yeah. of the cruelest men. I mean, really, these prosecution barristers—it's just terrifying reading. Mm. To just have everything you are in your private life held up for ridicule. Yeah, and then and, just be speculated and, on, mm. not only in that space of the court, mm. but you mm. know, to be the the topic on the front page of the newspaper and the when day they, after. When they, I think it was when they took him to prison, people were lining up and were spitting on him and all mm. that kind of, you know, he just it, really, the whole aspects of Wild, he's so much bigger than than that kind of aesthete, that kind of airy-fairy kind of yeah. wastrel. He's, he's just so much more than that. Mm. But have we got time to just talk, well, no we don't the, the idea of the fallen woman. Yeah, we do have. We can. We've we can talk minute. for. We can talk for two minutes. Two then. minutes, right? Yeah. I'll I'll have a minute and then you have a okay. minute. <laughs> um, I was wondering if the women were not such powerful figures in his plays, because in a sense, Wild takes up the position of the fallen woman because his sexuality oh, cannot be a part of the world he lives in, and therefore his. He fallen. is fallen just by the people he desires and the people ah, he has. Ah, that's interesting. So yeah, in some ways, Wilde is a fallen woman. Ah, I like that. And I was sort of wondering, and this is where the crunch comes for me, is he so good about women because he's actually just writing versions of himself? Yes, potentially. Or is he so good because he understands women 
who were fallen, whatever choices they did. I mean, who would be a woman, you know, yeah. tra tra facing marriage and all the rest of it back then. So, so yeah, that's that's what, that's really tell good. Tell me, Stephanie, is are, are they good because because they're him? They're him, or are they good because they're women? He brings them to life. I don't know. Well, I mean, I completely agree. I think that's a really interesting point of view on his women because they, like him, have committed a sexual sin. To many people, you know, the the fact that he slept with men is worse than the fact that, you know, women have premarital sex. So perhaps they're not... I, I would probably err on the side of generosity and say they're not versions of him, but he understood. He understood them. He, he mm. understood what that was mm. and mm. to have... And, and what happened to him in his trial, I suppose, is that everything about him became reduced to his sexuality. Yeah. And so there was nothing that was outside of that. There was It wasn't, you know, a part of his life. Yeah. It was his whole life yeah. and his whole being. And yeah. that's what happens to the fallen woman. Anything else that she is, clever, kind, generous, becomes nothing. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Everything else that a woman is once she's fallen is immaterial just gets wiped out. It just gets wiped out and all she is is mm. fallen. And mm. so that's mm. what happened to him at his trial. He's just um, an aberration, I suppose. Mm. Yes, like a disease. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. somebody who's gone wrong or who's yeah. sinned yeah. And, and gone off the path yeah. to righteousness or the and way of whatever. what a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to do to a human being. Yeah. But to answer my own question, I, I don't think they are versions of himself. I think he really... Does you know the neg you know, negative capability Keatsian thing? Yeah. I think he actually understands. He, he create. They strike me as women. You know, they're not mm. just versions of him and a male version of women. I, I think he's amazing. I think he does understand. Yeah, I think he he has a very kind of keenly developed mm. empathy for, mm. for women in that in that situation because he was in a very comparable. He was, situation. He was in the same thing. Yeah, yeah. in the same. Thing. I think that's a lovely place to finish. We've only gone. Um, five minutes at a time <laughs> so that's very good for us Lee. is that good for us yes. well, it's very good for us um, we, we will so have you back very soon um, thank you for coming in today Lee. it's a great pleasure as always Stephanie I love these talks I love these talks too and we actually do no preparation except for read no, book we don't sit we don't. and discuss what no, we're going to talk about yeah. we just sit down and an hour's chat comes out <laughs> Let's hope they enjoy it. Yeah, what yeah. If they don't, if they if they don't, don't I like apologise. We, we, we have fun, which is the main we, we thing. Have, yeah. This is the main thing, Stephanie. Yes, yes. Yeah, we enjoy it. We enjoy it. It's great to have some future discuss literature with. Um, so thank you again, Lee. Um, this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very highly appreciated. And if you have any suggestions about other books that Lee and I might like to, to talk about um, at great length, then you can please send them our way. You know, the kind of thing we like, anything anything old. <laughs> it's over 100 years old. We're probably we're, into it. We're yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you in a week. Bye. Bye.